Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Solis, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with David Danks, who's Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. His book, Unifying the Mind, Cognitive Representations as Graphical Models, is out from MIT Press. For many cognitive scientists, psychologists, and philosophers of mind, the best current theory of cognition holds that thinking is in some sense computation, in some sense because that core idea can and has been elaborated in a number of different ways that are, are or at least seem to be, incompatible in at least some important respects. In his new book, Danks proposes a version of the basic theory that links the mind closely with the computational framework used in machine learning. The idea that thinking involves manipulation of symbols encoded as graphical models. Danks argues that graphical models provide a unifying explanation of why we're able to move smoothly between different cognitive processes and why we're able to focus on features of situations that are relevant to our goals. While the book includes the mathematics behind graphical models, Denks explains his proposal in accessible yet precise terms for the non-mathematically trained reader. He discusses how graphical models work in causal reasoning, categorization, and other processes, how his view is related to more familiar cognitive frameworks, and some implications of his view for modularity and other traditional debates. Let's turn to the interview. David Danks, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation about your new book, Unifying the Mind. Before we get to the content of the book itself, uh, it'd be nice to have a little bit of idea of how you came to be a philosopher. I mean, you're a professor of philosophy and psychology at Carnegie Mellon, so there's an interesting story to be told there, obviously. Uh, so can you tell us how you came to be a philosopher and how uh, you sure. came to write this book? Yeah, so um, in some ways I, I kind of stumbled into philosophy. I started my undergraduate education as a math major and realized after a couple of years that it it wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. I enjoyed studying it, but I didn't want to do it. And I discovered that there was this wonderful thing called philosophy of mathematics uh, that would enable me to study math and think about math and logic and these kinds of formal notions of inquiry uh, without having to continue to do more math and found a bit of a loophole such that I could have that be my main focus as an undergraduate. Um, so it was less about falling in love with philosophy, I think, as it is widely understood and more that it was a, a wonderful place for me to get to ask the questions that were really interesting to me. And that was really the theme and has been the theme ever since in terms of going to graduate school in philosophy because I wanted to ask questions about the nature of mathematics, the nature of cognition, uh, the nature of uh, epistemology, epistemology and sort of inquiry into the world and how that connects to the scientific method more generally. And, you know, philosophy was the place that I was able to ask those questions. Um, it wasn't some deep falling in love with the grand questions that were asked by uh, the, the, the people that we often study in history classes. It was wanting to understand more about the world and the particular questions I wanted to ask about the world were being asked in philosophy departments. Um, so that's really what, what led me to graduate school in philosophy. And then um, after a few years as a researcher, uh, ended up in a tenure track position here at Carnegie Mellon. Um, but of course, doing a very particular kind of philosophy, namely continuing to ask questions about the mind. But now in an environment uh, here at CMU, where there aren't bright lines drawn around philosophical inquiry, the idea is, for somebody like myself to investigate the nature of the mind. And sometimes that means I'm asking traditional philosophy of mind questions. Sometimes I'm asking traditional cognitive psychology questions. Sometimes I'm doing AI and machine learning because I'm trying to find out about the nature of uh, what could be learned by any agent, for example. 
And so uh, I do have a somewhat odd position now where I'm trained as a philosopher. I am in a philosophy department, and yet I spend a lot of time doing things that would not traditionally be construed as philosophy, even though I see them that way. Um, even most of the psychological work I do, I see as really an outgrowth of asking foundational questions, which is what, in my view, much of philosophy is about. Okay. Um, well, this book does sort of uh, instantiate those those various interests, um, and particularly what you mentioned about machine learning. I mean, the graphical models model or theory that you that you propose. Uh, is one that is used in machine learning context, and you're kind of applying this to uh, the the question of what it is, what makes a mind a mind. Uh, the general idea is it falls within the general uh, domain of what I would call sometimes a computational model. Uh, that's been elaborated in a lot of different ways over the years. Uh, but it does involve, at least in the classical formulation, some sort of symbol manipulation. The symbols have often been thought of in linguistic terms, and uh, that's part of the original way that it was elaborated by people like Newell and Simon. And then, of course, Jerry Fodor with, uh, with the language of thought. But you go in a different direction, and I think it's obviously informed by your contacts and the people you're working with at, at Carnegie Mellon and your familiarity with the mathematics of uh, graphical models. So on your view, I mean, just to put the basic claim out there, uh, what unifies the mind is a particular structure of the representations that are manipulated, and these manipul these symbols if I may say, if I may call them symbols, so, so you, that's something that you might want to go into. Uh, the, what what are manipulated are, uh, they have the structure of graphical models. So maybe you can, before we get into details of the view and what it explains and the various types of inference and processes that it's involved in, uh, can you just give us a general picture of what your proposal is? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I want to, I guess, first, if I uh, if I may take a brief step back and give a brief overview of just what a graphical model is uh, in terms of the sort of mathematical computational framework, because I realize that there might be uh, uh, plenty of people out there who, despite my best efforts, still don't know what a graphical model is. I keep trying to spread the word about them, but uh, but I realize I'm I'm just one person. So graphical models, the basic idea is, at least as I use them in the book, is to think about them as ways of modeling relevance. So there are things in the world that are relevant to other things, uh, features, objects, and so forth. And there's lots of kinds of relevance we can have. Things can be causally relevant. So um, the switch on my wall is causally relevant for whether the lights are on. Things can be informationally relevant. Uh, seeing my colleague wearing a heavy jacket today uh, is informationally relevant about what the weather is outside. Informationally relevant because presumably the weather is a cause of the jacket that my colleague is wearing. Uh, there can be taxonomic relevance. The fact that I am a human means that I'm also an animal. And, and on and on. I mean, we can do communicative relevance, uh, definitional relevance. And what graphical models do is they try to capture the idea that some things are relevant to other things, but it's not the case that everything is directly relevant to everything else. So the way we do that mathematically is by having a graph, not a graph of, say, a parabola, but a graph built around nodes and arrows or nodes and lines connecting the nodes. And the nodes represent the things that stand in the relevance relations. The arrows and edges represent the relevance relations. And then once we have a graph like this, a sort of purely qualitative object, we can, in certain cases, uh, provide quantitative information. So we might be able to give, if it's a causal graph, we might be able to give probabilities. So the probability of the effect given that the cause occurs. So that's the basic idea of a graphical model. We take some notion of relevance and we represent it the relevance relations in the world 
using these nodes and arrows or lines and some sort of quantitative information. Now, the way I just described that is the way that graphical models are presented. Well, actually, they're usually not presented quite as generally as I just did, but that's the way that they're certainly used in statistics, in machine learning, in computer science, uh, in psychology when we're doing data analysis. Um, so there's a lot of work that's been done using graphical models to try to, for example, represent um, what factors in the world cause which other ones. And I think among philosophers, where this is most often seen is in what are sometimes called structural equation models used in analyses of causation by people like Jim Woodward or Chris Hitchcock uh, or my colleague Clark Gleamore here at CMU. Now, those are specific kinds of graphical models that are focused on causation. My interest in the book was to start from the observation that one of the things that we humans are really good at uh, is the ability, is our ability to pay attention to only what matters. Now, we're not perfect at it, of course, and we tend to focus on the, uh, the significant failures that we have, or we pay attention to something that isn't important think here about cases of superstition, where I think that the way I tie my shoes impacts whether my favorite sports team will win. Um, well, that's, you know, we don't, almost certainly the way I tie my shoes does not matter for how my, for whether my favorite sports team is going to win. But, you know, we still pay attention to that. So that's a kind of failure of recognition of, of irrelevance. Um, and other times there are things that are relevant that we don't pay attention to. But by and large, as we move through the world, I would suggest we're very good at only paying attention to the things that are mostly relevant to achieving the goals and um, uh, achieving the ends that we're trying to set out to, to succeed at. Mm -hmm. um, now, that... Yeah. Sorry. I, well, I did have a question, but go ahead. Um. Well, I was just going to say, so that, that led me to think, well, maybe what we should do is we should think about um, what are the knowledge structures that might uh, be able to directly encode this notion of relevance or some notion of relevance? And, well, look, based on other work I've been doing, I, I had direct familiarity with this framework of graphical models as, well, that's what we use over in machine learning and AI. So who knows? Maybe this might be a way of understanding what we humans are doing as well. Now, of course, uh, that might not be the case. That's where all of the empirical work comes in. And that's uh, a lot of the work of the book is trying to make the case that, in fact, descriptively, these are good models of our representations. But that was really the the inspiration behind it, the the intuition that I'm trying to explore in the book. Okay. What I, what I was going to ask about relevance itself. I mean, you mentioned about these graphical models uh, providing a representation of relevance relations. And you mentioned, well, and, and this is a familiar philosophical point. Everything is in some sense relevant to everything else, but, but, uh, that's that's not really a, a worry in this in this case. I mean, it might be a more high level philosophical worry. But my question is really, can you say something about these relevance relations beyond just oh well, here's a node and here's another node, and here we'll draw an edge between them because they're relevant in some way, uh, and. What are the relevant ones? Well, they're the things that we tend to focus on. Is there is there some more illumination that you can give in terms of the, the actual relevance relationships that are represented in these models? Definitely. And I, it, you can say more about those relevance relations uh, in a couple of through a couple of different avenues. Um, the first is that. Of course, in practice, as, as you noted, these graphical models come from somewhere. They are learned or constructed for some reason. They, don't, they aren't just these magical platonic objects that exist all on their own. And in fact, the epistemology is very important in terms of helping us to characterize the notion of relevance that's at play. So when I have a causal model, so, so let me step back and say it this way. Um, mathematically, I can have a causal model in the, by which I mean a model in which the edges are giving me information about causal relevance. 
I can have an informational model in the sense that the edges just tell me about which things are informative about others without making any claims about causation. Mathematically, those might well be identical. The way that they get distinguished is by the semantics of the edges. And edges in this setup, in this way of thinking about things, get their semantics on the one hand from the reason why the edge is there in the first place. You can almost think about this uh, while I'm hesitant to go too far down this road. There's almost a kind of um, uh, connection to a lot of the work that comes out of sort of biological work on semantics. I'm thinking here of sort of Millikan and mm -hmm. subsequent work um, that, you know, the reason why you come to believe that there is this relevance relation is part of the semantics of the relevance relation in this case. The other place that I think semantic content comes in is in terms of the operations that I can perform uh, that I can and do justifiably perform on the representation. So the representations, graphical models are not these static objects that just sit there. They are things that we use to do inference, reasoning, decision-making, planning, all these other kinds of things. And so different edge semantics, different notions of relevance are going to license different kinds of inferences. So um, there's the classic causal asymmetry of intervention. If I intervene and wiggle the cause, then probabilistically the effect will change. If I intervene and wiggle the effect, then we don't expect that the cause will change. Mm -hmm. That same uh, sort of idea doesn't, that same sort of operation doesn't really hold in the same way when we're talking about informational relevance uh, or constitutive relevance, right? If I have a constitutive relation, then intervening to change the high level thing will change the lower level uh, by uh, uh, typically on most ways to think about constitution. So there are these ways that any particular graphical model will get a much richer edge semantics. What I find interesting about the framework though is that those are things that can be tuned or tailored to the particular uh, domain or setting or learning method that we're using in a particular occasion. So it's a mathematically uh, shared framework. It's a similar sort of language, but what we do with that language is very different. How we fill in and uh, describe things in the world can, can exhibit quite a lot of variation in terms of its use. Okay, so um, so it, it to use the old vocabulary of syntax and semantics it's the it's the syntax that's in common and the semantics that will be changing from one use to another use is that the idea that it that is now there's a lot of reuse of semantics and it gets a little bit tricky right. because of course an important thing is that these are network structures they're not uh, just you know single pairs of nodes so it isn't just about a is a cause of B, it's A is a cause of B, and B is a cause of C, and C is a cause of D, and we can represent much larger networks of relevance. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think that that's a, a sensible way to think about certainly how I think about the use of these kinds of formal mathematical computational tools. Okay. They're trying to outline the structure, right. uh, not necessarily every way that it gets filled in. Okay. So speaking of structure, and this is, again, something you just mentioned, and you get, you get to the issue in Chapter 2, uh, another very large issue in philosophy of mind, of course, is that of intentional realism. Um, and you, uh, you, you say that you're a realist about these representations, that there is something structured uh, and somewhat persistent, somewhat persistent um, in the in the in the mind I won't say brain mm -hmm. because we can get to the relationship between this and neural activity later on so you're you're a realist about them um, and and so that sort of makes your view somewhat different from a uh, classical Fodorian language of thought view where what our heads are filled with are sentences. You know, syntax, their syntax is the syntax of a language. Right. This syntax is not the syntax of a language. So can you, can you say something about the different sorts of intentional realisms that, you know, how your view compares with that more, you know, classical view, if you want to put it that way and, and how it might improve upon it? 
Uh, certainly. So, I mean, I think, well, w one improvement I would suggest is being able to think about networks rather than the sort of linear structure of, of classical language, um, which makes it, I think, a little bit easier for me to be a realist about the structures than when we have, when we're constrained to only think in terms of linear sentences. Um, I think another difference, at least with the sort of Fodorian picture about language of thought, is about where the meaning or content of the nodes comes in yeah. and the edges, of course. You know, I earlier said with regards to the edge semantics that part of that is is determined by what are the characteristic causes of having that edge represented and the characteristic effects. What are the inferences I can make about it? And similarly, I think when we're thinking about nodes, uh, it's, you know, my view is a, um, you might think of it as a sort of very modern, I almost had to hesitate to, to draw this connection, but I think it can be useful, sort of Davidsonian picture in the sense of the content of the nodes comes from their characteristic causes and characteristic effects in our minds, not necessarily in the representation. Um, so the, the meaning of the nodes in this way is tied to the experiences I've had and to the things that I do in terms of the reasoning and cognitions that I have. So there's not a picture here. My picture is not one in which there's some fixed collection of nodes uh, that is shared universally among all humans. It is definitely one that allows for significant variability in because the nodes are in some ways and in many contexts, not all, but in many contexts, the nodes are going to be roughly corresponding to things like concepts. And uh, I think we acquire concepts from the world, uh, perhaps shaped by some background constraints, not that concepts are built into us from, from the moment that we're born. So that's another significant difference, I think, with the Fodorian language of thought. Now, I think the biggest, well, I don't know if this is a big difference, but uh, it seems to me that it is, is when I say realism, and you raised the issue of neural but uh, and said, well, we won't talk about that just yet, but I think it's important to make sure to be clear up front that my notion of realism, what I was really trying in some ways to do there is have a notion of what it is to be a realist about representations that is derivable in part from the practices that we find in the cognitive sciences. So if you ask most cognitive scientists, what does it mean to say a representation is there in somebody's mind? Yeah. They will point to things like um, the ability to, to generate novel predictions about what the person would do if they used that representation. There's a lot of counterfactuals in there. But, uh, yeah. but I think you know the intuition is that when we posit that there's something really there in the world, that licenses a set of inferences, predictions, abilities to control, and so forth, uh, that are in the cognitive case, we can cash out in terms of if I, if you have a representation of a particular form of the concept cat, then I can make all kinds of predictions about how you'll behave if I show you new cats or if I play you the sound of a meow and ask you uh, to predict whether that animal has four legs, six legs, or eight legs, or two legs, okay. and all of these other sorts of things. Um, another, another sort of analogy that might be useful, uh, that was certainly useful to me in trying to figure out how to articulate this view, was thinking back to some of the early uh, days of atomic chemistry. So why is it that people were, after a certain period of time, realists about atoms? Well, it had to do with the fact that if we posit there are atoms there, we can be tremendously predictively successful, and we can both in control and observational prediction. And so that l gives us sort of inductive, ab abductive reasons to think these things are really there. Now, of course, for the philosophers of science listening to this, yeah. this does not in any way answer, say, a von Frossen-style worry about, uh, well, but maybe the world is completely different and you've just managed to save the phenomena. Right. I mean, the instrumentalist, uh, you know, von Frossen, or, or, or in this case, Dennett, or Dennett in some version of himself, right. would obviously say, I don't need to be, I can agree with everything you just said, and, and yet I don't think there, whether there's really, you know, sentences in my head or graphs in my head or is, is an entirely different question. Absolutely. And um, so this is where... Uh, 
unfortunately, we do need to start to think about, I would argue, the neural, because I think if one takes, I suppose that my view is that if one is going to try and exist purely at the cognitive level, a certain measure of instrumentalism is probably inevitable. I think that, you know, ultimately, if you restrict solely to the cognitive, it's uh, hard to see that we would be able to get the right kinds of evidence to do more than be um, a very specific kind of instrumentalist. I want to be clear. It's not a it's almost maybe more a kind of quietism where we say, look, there's a, there comes a point in time where if you keep asking me, yes, but is it really there? Yeah. I say, I don't know. And I, I'm not able to give you any evidence one way or the other, right? So kind of agnosticism. Um, but I think that, you know, we aren't typically stuck solely with the cognitive. We are getting better as a broad scientific community at starting to connect the cognitive to the systems level neuro. Unfortunately, I think representation is one place that we are lagging behind. And so that's something that um, I've been thinking about a lot recently is, are there ways to connect the sort of view that I've articulated with the kinds of neural evidence that we're actually able to collect at the current time, uh, in, whether it's in humans or perhaps, for example, seeing to what extent the view that I articulate might hold for rats or pigeons or monkeys, where we might be able to get a bit more direct neural evidence. Um, so I think I, I take that, that need seriously uh, but I also think, you know, at the current time, we don't actually know how uh, exactly graphs could be implemented in the head. Um, there are multiple research groups working on that question right now. And um, I think to the extent that we're able to find ways of connecting it up, then we'll be able to have more direct realist, uh, more direct tests of whether my my realism is warranted. OK, good. So let me let me just ask before we get to the actual kinds of processes that where you where you employ your theory to explain various cognitive processing. Uh, let me just read. You get to you talk about connectionism uh, actually later in the book, but I, I think I want to bring it up at this point because you know again going back to Fodor and the language of thought. Uh, you know, connectionism, there was this classical versus, you know, language of thought, classical computationalism versus connectionism debate for a long time. And, uh, you know, Fodor famously argued that, you know, the connectionism is just an implementation level theory. It's not a cognitive theory. Connectionists were all about interpreting the nodes in some way as, you know, in fact, as you mentioned before, the nodes were concepts. Uh, that was at least one way to, to interpret them, mm -hmm. and so they did see their theory as a cognitive theory. That particular debate has, you know, died out in certain ways. Uh, but I'd, I think it would be illuminating for if you could – explain your the relationship between your view and connectionism because you do the graphical models uses at least the same sort of language of nodes and edges it visually or in terms of the you know the actual representation on a page or something of the networks uh, and you know behind that, I guess the mathematics too of how you proceed from one node to another in connectionism. How how is how is your view uh, related to the connectionist alternative to computationalism? Classical. That's a, it's a great question. Um, so let me answer it in a couple of different ways. Uh, so first, uh, as you mentioned, there's a real similarity between neural networks uh, as they are traditionally constructed and graphical models. Um, a traditional neural network is a very specific kind of graphical model. Uh, and in machine learning, people actually work on things of essentially hybrids. So can we use techniques from the PDP history to improve inference in graphical models and vice versa? Can we do neural networks better by importing some of the techniques that people have developed for larger classes of graphical models? 
But I think that there's in in the case uh, of the architecture that I'm advancing, I think there's a really important difference with uh, between the traditional kinds of neural network models that have been put forward and the uh, graphical models that I'm interested in exploring. And the big difference is that for me, there's no particular um, engagement with questions of, for example, distributed representation. So in a traditional neural network, there's a notion of essentially the flow of the network. There's an input layer, there's an output layer, there may be any number of intermediate layers, there may be uh, feedback between layers. But the idea is inputs coming in and outputs coming out the other end, and then we look for representational structures in the middle. I'm much more interested in things like the represent your representation of uh, of cat that involve of the concept cat that involves these different features and the relationships that obtain between the features, such that those might very well get implemented in a neural network. There may be a distributed representation version of that graphical model. Um, but I don't want to be committed to any particular story in that regard, simply because I think the empirical data don't determine any particular story. So it'd be a mistake to make a commitment right now uh, when we really don't don't know anything about that. Um, so in that sense, I think that the questions I'm asking are just very different questions from those that are being asked by most neural network people. Now, the graphical models that I'm Looking at, there is, a, I think, a closer similarity to some of the other network models from, say, the 70s and 80s uh, in the form of what were sometimes called ISA networks. Mm -hmm. So these networks that show the, con con the relationships or dependencies between various kinds of concepts or, or other notions. Um, so, I, you know, I view what I'm doing and what many of the people in the connectionist community is doing, uh, I view a lot of it as complementary to one another. And that leads me to the, the second um, way that I would sort of respond to this. And that that's, you know, one part of what I do in the second chapter of the book is think quite a lot about the notion of what I refer to as intertheoretic relations. And it's exactly because I'm worried about things like the relationship between what I'm doing and connectionist models. So traditionally, I think, uh, at least within the cognitive sciences, there have been a few different ways of thinking about sort of levels. And levels are the only way that people typically talk about intertheoretic relations. So we talk about uh, a theory at one level reducing to a theory at another level. Or if one is Jerry Fodor, one, a theory at one level being autonomous from a theory at another level. So uh, Fodor's argument that the special sciences are autonomous from neuroscience. Or um, somebody like... Uh, I don't know, John Bickle arguing that cognitive science reduces to neuroscience. And both of those kinds of pictures, both of those notions of intertheoretic relations, while I think they are very much relations, they're special cases. And I find that when I look at what I do in cognitive science or a lot of the cognitive science I know, they just don't capture the practice, which is much more about understanding the constraints that exist between different kinds of theories without necessarily requiring those to rise to the level of a reduction. And similarly, in cognitive science, people are very fond of talking about uh, what are called Mars levels. So these, this is due to David Marr uh, from his book in the 1980s, Vision, where the idea is that sometimes we're giving a model that is at the computational level, which essentially says, here's what the system is trying to accomplish. Sometimes we give it at the algorithmic level, essentially here's how the system is accomplishing that task. Sometimes at the implementational level, here's the nitty gritty details of what's really going on causally inside the system. Um, and that sort of way of thinking uh, works reasonably well when we're under trying to understand explanations of a computer's functioning. And occasionally it works in cognitive science. But again, like with reduction and autonomy, uh, I was finding that these were uh, much too coarse to actually do justice to the kinds of complicated intertheoretic relations and intertheoretic constraints that could obtain between theories. So what I do in, in part of the second chapter is try to develop a theory. Uh, essentially, it's a kind of philosophy of science theory about the nature of intertheoretic relations and how they manifest in constraints between different kinds of theories. 
And, you know, selfishly, much of the reason I wanted to do that is because I don't want to be committed to saying that my cognitive architecture reduces to neural nets. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's going to. I don't know if that's the right relation. I certainly don't think it's autonomous from neural nets. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, the mind uh, is certainly implemented in the brain. And so we need to find ways to connect them up somehow, perhaps not with a reduction, though. Similarly, Mars levels didn't uh, provide me with the language that I needed to talk about these kinds of complex relationships, that uh, the cognitive architecture that I develop in terms of graphical models will constrain in many ways the kinds of neural explanations and neural networks we should expect to see, but it's not going to determine them, uh, nor are the fine-grained neural details necessarily going to determine the features that matter for for my cognitive models. So that's that's the other way that I would approach it is to say, uh, if you ask me what the relationship is, I, I could go on for another four hours about the complex constraints right. that I think obtained. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, it means there's not a, a nice, clean one one sentence answer. Right. Well, that's that's where reading the book is actually important, <laughs> among other <laughs> among other reasons. Uh, let me let me follow up on. I mean, it's, it's sort of going along the same. Well, it's two, I mean, million questions, but uh, let me let me just go to the question of of concepts, uh, which is actually the second application that you discussed. The, fir the first one, you articulate the graphical models view uh, uh, for causal inferences and causal reasoning of specific types. And we can, we can return to that. But the reason why I want to go to the second application, which is the acquisition and application of, of concepts in you know, categorization and, and you know, inferring to features of objects from maybe observed ones and hierarchical inference. You gave some of these examples earlier in the interview. Um, and on your view, this, these development acquisition and uses of concepts are operations on, on graphical models. Um, so in the book itself, you elaborate on that, and I would invite you to talk about your, the relationship between the graphical models and the different theories of concepts, you know, the most popular being the exemplar theory, the, um, the prototype theory, and the theory theory. Uh, so first question is, you know, elaborate how you explain those particular operations using concepts. But also, if you could, this kind of goes back to the, my question before about structure and the language of thought, the linguistic structure, because concepts are the building blocks, at least, you know, on a, on a fairly maybe intuitive or crude view, concepts are the building blocks of propositions, and propositions are the objects of thought, and... Uh, and, and so once you get to that sort of structure, you're talking about uh, the sorts of structures that Fodor was talking about. So could you say something about, about both those things? First, the one you talk about explicitly in the book in terms of how the graphical models view uh, illuminates concept use. And then how, you know, pushing you a little bit further, how, again, does it relate to, to linguistic or propositional structure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of the uh, – I'll answer those in, in some ways uh, the easier way, perhaps, um, which is to, to start with the, the view that's articulated in the book about – how we can understand concepts and the various operations that we perform with and on them in terms of graphical models. So the idea is that a concept is uh, gets mapped onto essentially a particular graphical model. So for the concept of cat, uh, we map that to a particular graphical model. Now, the structure of the graphical model is going to be different. So part of the difference between your concept of cat and your concept of dog has to do with the nodes that participate in the graphical models. So uh, every dog 
uh, fails to meow, so you probably don't represent that fact explicitly as part of your concept, but you're going to represent uh, whether a cat meows. Um, and so part of it is in the notes, but part of it also is in the structures. So the argument that I make in the book is that these different theories of concepts that we have, we as psychologists have tended to talk about, as you say, exemplar, prototype, and theory theory, what these really are corresponding to, well, let me take a step back and say, you know, one challenge that has often been levied against uh, the psychology of concepts is the argument that, look, all three of these theories have pretty good empirical evidence in different contexts and in different settings. So one of the things that I do in the book is, is show that, in fact, uh, we can convert all of these theories into essentially particular classes of graphical models. So the idea is that if I advocate a prototype theory of concepts, what I'm really advocating in a, in a certain sense is the claim that all of our concepts are graphical models with a particular kind of structure. So that the difference is simply about the nodes, but they all have the same basic structure. And so what that, I mean, there's really two, you know, there's an advantage to doing that and an implication to, to that uh, way of doing it. The advantage is on the one hand, it enables me to uh, use a lot of prior empirical work on the nature of concepts, that I can embrace the diversity of theories of concepts because of providing this unification in terms of graphical models. And let me make sure to, to say as a, as a side note for listeners who might be concerned about this, uh, importantly, graphical models are not universal approximators. Uh, there are lots of things that you could do that uh, could not be modeled as a graphical model. So the fact that we can put all these things into a common language is not that, that we didn't know that was going to happen at the outset. In fact, I didn't think it was going to. It was a surprise to me when I was able to do it. Um, so, you know, and then the implication, though, is that it says that what really matters, and here I think this is actually fits with the intuition of many people in, in psychological work who are doing psychological work on concepts, that what really is important or not the only thing, but one of the things that's very important in distinguishing between different concepts or different kinds of concepts are the structures that they posit about the about the world. Um, so that's what the book really tries. That's what the, the chapter in the book really tries to do is to say, here are these different ways that people have argued we should think about concepts. They have traditionally thought of them as competitors. And in some sense, they are competitors because they posit different underlying graphical structure. But we can understand them as manif as essentially being driven by data and by domain. That um, though I'm not able, though I wasn't able to do it in the in the book chapter for reasons of space, you can actually start to look at when we have uh, what appear to be exemplar-based con concepts and when we appear to have prototype-based concepts. And I think there are real patterns and regularities behind uh, when one kind of concept seems to appear rather than another, which fit very cleanly with the graphical models sort of picture, that what's really varying is the structures that are permitted, the possible structures for the concept, as opposed to uh, some deep, you know, that, that there somehow are different mechanisms or different groups of concepts depending on what whether they're prototype or exemplar based mm -hmm. now that goes to you know now to turn to the second question you know sort of isn't this uh don't don't i end up in a place that's essentially Fodor version 2.0 or i don't know 3.0 or 4.0 well um, i i don't know I, I that wasn't quite what i was implying um okay it was more just how does this relate to uh, the structure of propositions. Ah, great. Yeah. So, so the first thing is, um, you know, one of the, there's a kind of mathematical sense in which if you give me a graphical model, um, I can, in almost all cases, I can basically convert it into a list of propositions. If you think here about drawing a causal graph, so uh, if you, and this is other work that, that I and others have done, if you take people who are untrained in any particular way of expressing causal structures, they will naturally represent them in terms of boxes and arrows. 
So if you ask them to explain the causal structure behind, you know, the sequence of lights in a room, they will do things like write down switch number one, arrow switch, uh, light number one. They, people will naturally draw things like graphs. Now, as we've long known in philosophy, of course, you know, those kinds of things we can represent as lists of propositions. But, you know, as the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> Um, I, you know, unfortunately this is audio only, but I'm sitting here moving my hands around in space trying to indicate when you have a graphical model, it might in some theoretical sense be mappable to a set of propositions, but it's not the case that, um, that, that has from the point of view of any sort of computational or inferential procedure that you might have in mind or if you're trying to think about descriptive adequacy with regards to human cognition, I just don't think that it, it fits uh, in any clean way. Um, can I mathematically write it all down? Could I have written the whole book in terms of lists of propositions? Uh, maybe. I confess it never occurred to me to try. <laughs> um, but my guess is there may well be such a transformation that I could have applied, but I think it would have been entirely un unilluminated. Um, because I don't think that that's the way that our representations are structured. I don't think they're structured in terms of lists of propositions. I think that when we as philosophers think about uh, the contents of knowledge as being propositions, I think of those as the propositions that we are deriving from our representations, which are structured not as linguistic propositions. Um, now, of course, this is still a symbolic view. Uh, though I want to ground the symbols, that is to say the, the sort of base level nodes, I want to ground those uh, in a very different way than I think many of the people who advocate for a, a sort of language of thought view. But it is, it is certainly a symbolic, uh, in that sense, uh, picture of the mind. But I personally tend to think that that's right. We do have at least up to the kinds of instrumental realism that, uh, that I was describing earlier, I think we've got very good evidence that we humans have symbols in our minds. I think uh, theories that claim we have nothing even symbol-like or anything that can be usefully understood as a symbol, I think those are just empirically wrong. Um, I think at the very, even if you have the most distributed view in the world, there's clearly uh, aspects of our cognition that it's sort of the right way to, to represent it is in terms of symbol manipulation. So this is, a, you know, in some ways, I suppose I'm trying to uh, have my cake and eat it too, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to be tied to a completely linguistic view of the contents of mind, but I still want to have a symbolic view. Mm -hmm. It's just a different way of connecting up the symbols that allows for much richer structures and much richer kinds of relationships between them. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, okay, so then... Uh, let's let me just raise the one of the Fodorian arguments, you know, for a language of thought, or the the need for that is the idea of systematicity of thought that someone who can uh, think that John loves Mary has the capacity to think that Mary loves John. Um, but also, we also need a way to be able to represent these structures in different ways that isn't just a, a a node for John, a node for Mary, and a node for loves, right? That's, that's right. you know, kind of a, a somewhat crude way that, that Fodor might put it. I don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but how would graphical models explain that the systematicity and productivity and, and the difference between sentences or propositions that have the same, I don't nodes, I suppose, or, or, uh, but encode very different sorts of thought. Right. So, um, so, so a couple of different things. So the first is, uh, that, um, I think it's important to to see that in the um, graphical models based picture that I advocate in the book, there are uh, the nodes and the graphs themselves can stand in certain kinds of hierarchical relationships or compositional relationships. So um, 
David, uh, I'll use myself here, right? So the concept that somebody has for David might include as part of what it is to be me, namely the, might have included in it the concept of professor, professor might have included in it the concept of teacher, uh, teacher might have included in it the concept of expert, right? So don't worry so much about the inclusion part. That's uh, that's a lot of the work of that chapter is trying to explain just what how that gets cashed out in the graphical models framework. Right. But the important thing is that it isn't a picture. It isn't a flat picture in the sense that it isn't that every node is equal is on the same level as every other node. Uh, it certainly is a picture in which I want to and need to allow for the you know uh, some cat concepts are superordinate to others you know that uh, or subordinate to others in the sense that they are subtypes or supertypes of of a particular concept. So all of those pieces uh, I think are are one issue that comes up that is um, not always I think carefully thought about when people think about things like systematicity mm -hmm. um, because I think that there's different kinds of systematicity that one can have. Now, in terms of the graphical models picture, um, there's uh, there are a couple of different things that I think are going to come to the fore here. Um, so the first is that there is a certain kind of replacement that can readily occur by virtue of the fact that uh, that the nodes actually essentially can take on different values. So, you know, the light switch can be on or off. So we immediately get systematicity because for any particular proposition that's derived from a particular graphical model, I can swap out different values for one of the variables, for one of the nodes, and thereby get sentences that may be false, but are at least meaningful because they correspond to a particular way of realizing values for the nodes in the graphical model. Now, that's not going to work for the John Loves Mary case, though. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to work in large part because um, the view that is outlined in the book, one of the, uh, in my opinion, uh, real lacuna of the framework that I outline in the book is there's not much engagement directly with language. And in particular, there's not a whole lot of engagement directly with our representations of verbs. So I don't look, for example, at verbal concepts. I look at things like cat and dog, not things like bite and scratch. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that's, I think, uh, you know, no book can do everything. Um, and, it's, and no framework can do everything right off the bat. Uh, so I think it was a reasonable place to sort of draw a line. Uh, at the time I was working on the book, my knowledge of linguistic phenomena was not where it was going to need to be to do justice to that part of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was, a, it was a, I will defend my decision to draw a bit of a line there. Um, but I did it recognizing that it was a real shortcoming. And it was something that I thought was, uh, was an issue. And it's something that uh, I have since really set myself the task of trying to fill. So although it's not in the book, we are right now, and this is a collaborative work with a colleague here at Carnegie Mellon, Mandy Simons, a linguist, we are actively figuring out, and we actually have now a full model of how what this would look like, that integrates together linguistic structures in the form of things like John Loves Mary with the graphical model-based view of the different kinds of concepts. And so we we are now in the middle of using this to explore lots of linguistic phenomena, such as um, anaphora, you know, the sort of the resolution of indeterminacy across multiple sentences and a discourse, and these sorts of things. So unfortunately, the book doesn't tell you how you get the systematicity of John Loves Mary, uh, mm. but we have now figured out how to do it. And, and it requires some additional structure that isn't discussed in the book um, about sort of the realizations or instantiations of concepts to apply to particular individuals in particular contexts. Essentially, what we needed to develop is a kind of uh, that at any moment in time, you have something like a sort of model of the world. Uh, of the relevant parts of the world that are relevant to the discourse and lots of provisos attached to that. But in some sense, you've got a sort of picture of what's being talked about. And um, that provides a structure 
that is only partially captured by graphical models. Uh, there is some additional structure that isn't necessarily, I think, fruitfully uh, expressed as a graphical model. You can sort of do it as a trivial model, but it's not very interesting. And I think that that's, that's something I should make sure to be clear about that I'm perfectly comfortable with. Um, there was, uh, I confess, a, a, an early review of the book, which I found a bit amusing because the reviewer made a comment to the effect of, Dank somehow seems to think that uh, the scope of where graphical models are found in the mind should depend on empirical details. And my response is to say, well, yes, of course. Where, how else should we figure out the scope of it? Uh, I don't think that graphical models are going to capture every single representation in our minds. I actually argue in the book that certain kinds of perceptual phenomena are probably not represented using graphical models. Right. And so my view is lots and lots of our representations are graphical models, but you know, not everything's going to be, and, and I'm okay with that. And what we're finding is to fully capture things like uh, John loves Mary, but Mary doesn't love John. To be able to fully express that does require importing some uh, structured representations that that are not exactly graphical models. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, well, let me let me uh, let me move. I, I did want to ask about the causal inference, but I, I think we'll have to leave that. The reader readers can can in the discover that what you have to say about cause inference and, and the the limits of the of the of your view for explaining causal perception as you just mentioned but let me let me just move on to some of the implications and in particular you have a discussion at the uh, toward the end of the book about modularity right big issue um, and there again in a sense Fodor looms large for his book Modularity of Mind and the idea and and I think also the mind doesn't work that way the idea that certain uh, certain mental or cognitive capacities are, are modular famously vision on his view with the Muller-Lyer illusion but that central cognition was not modular and interestingly the reason why it wasn't uh, for at least one reason is that basically when we think we you know anything can be relevant to anything else and we didn't have a clue as to how that happened. So could right. you could you say something about uh, your perspective from the graphical models view of modularity um, and then how your view relates to Fodor's worries or concerns about, explaining central cognition and the lack of our understanding of of how we manage to focus on what's relevant yeah no absolutely these are it's great questions um so the in terms of this issue of sort of how i'm thinking about modularity um so the first thing i suppose i should make sure to be clear about is that i in the book, I'm by and large focusing on, uh, well, I, I wouldn't use this term, but the Fodorian sort of central cognition idea. That is actually the area that I'm, I'm mostly concerned with in the book. I'm not worried about things like visual processing, uh, at least in terms of this cognitive architecture. Mm. Um, now, as you, as you said, you know, Fodor said, well, wait a second, this can't have modularity because anything could be relevant to anything else. I actually think that the graphical models view provides a very useful clarification about um, a, a kind of ambiguity of what Fodor meant when he said relevant. Hmm. So to consider, let me just give a very simple example, right? Uh, so suppose that A causes B, B causes C, C causes D, all the way on down the line until Y causes Z. Right. And now we want to ask, is A causally relevant to Z? Well, in some sense, yeah, there's a 25 stage causal pathway from A to Z. So presumably, at least under some kinds of conditions, it'll be uh, causally relevant in some way. But there's also an important sense in which, no, it's not causally relevant because there's no direct connection from A to Z. So if, for example, I have that representation. If I know whether or not Y occurred, 
the variable y, the, the factor y, learning whether a occurred or not isn't going to help me predict whether z occurs. I've already got the information that's needed. There's what in uh, the causal literature sometimes referred to as a screening off relation. Once you know some piece of information, uh, other pieces of information are no longer helpful in doing any sort of prediction or inference. And I think that Fodor was ambiguous about what he had in mind when he said everything was relevant for everything else. Hmm. Because, and I think that graphical models can help show this. Because whenever I've built large scale graphical models, it is the case that almost everything is in some way indirectly connected to everything else. We talk about in the graphical models community, there's the notion of a graph, the, the node and edge part, of a graph being what we say is connected, which is to say that there exists some path between each pair of nodes. Mm -hmm. And much of what people work on does tend to be, they do tend to be connected graphs because, well, you know, you want things that are not completely disconnected from one another. We want to think about the issues where there's some path of relevance between things. But that's not to say that things are directly relevant to one another. And it turns out that Fodor's worry, well, we can't be modular because everything is because everything might be relevant to everything else, can kind of disappear if you have a graphical model. Because I can now say things like, well, once I know about the local neighborhood around something I'm trying to predict, I don't need to pay attention to the stuff outside of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It could, is it relevant? Well, yes, but the relevance is entirely through the neighborhood that I'm looking at. And so therefore, it's all the, all the informational relevance mm -hmm. that the other thing, this obscure factor carries, it's already been accounted for in the local neighborhood. And so I think we can, in that sense, look at the Fodorian challenge and say, you can't have complete modularity in the sense of a piece that functions uh, entirely independently from everything else. But you can have approximations to modularity in the sense that once you know about the local neighborhood, you don't need to worry too much about things outside the neighborhood. So we can solve the computational challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, related in certain ways to uh, ways that people have used graphical models to try to solve the frame problem in AI. Right. Um, side reference if, for those who might know about that. Now, um, you know, I think in that sense, it gives us a new way to think perhaps about modularity. It gives us a, perhaps a bit more fine-grained. Uh, Fodor has whatever is 12 properties of a modular system. I don't even remember exactly how many off the top of my head. Um, but this is a kind of modularity, a kind of, it's not informational encapsulation, it's informational screening off, or it's not something being entirely separate. It's something being locally separable mm -hmm. that for the purposes of this inference, I can focus just on this small part of my representational structures. And I think that in that sense, it gives us a much more, uh, it gives us a sort of Goldilocks view. It's, uh, it's not the complete hardline modularity, everything separated from everything else, but it also is not at the other extreme of everything's connected to everything and it's a computational mess and we can never hope to do any sort of inference. It's rather saying that we've got just the right amount and kinds of relevance. We, we've got relevance that works and gives us local modular modularity where the locality is often driven by what I know, what I believe about the context I'm in, what goals I'm trying to accomplish in this particular moment and these kinds of things. So it's not, I mean, from a philosophical point of view, it's in some ways, I, I suppose, unsatisfactory because I can't take some hard line pound my fist on the table stance <laughs> about modularity. Uh, it's, but it's, I think from a cognitive point of view, uh, exactly the right story to tell about the kinds of local flexibility that we have um, to find the things that matter on this occasion in this way. Cool. Um, well, that was that was very uh, very illuminating. Um, we we're out of time, unfortunately, and there's there's so much to talk about. And I would just encourage readers to actually read the book. Um, I hope that our conversation has prompted that uh, even further. 
but I, I do need to end, and I like to end with a question about what you are working on now. I mean, since the book has come out, are you you're following up on certain strands, or have you gone in other directions? Uh, a little bit of both, right? So I've, I've already I'd already mentioned some of the work uh, trying to bring language into the cognitive architecture of the book. Right. We've also done a lot of follow up experiments on looking at uh, how these graphical models might uh, get passed around to different kinds of cognitive operations. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at you know sort of that sort of cross cognition transfer. But I should say also. Uh, since the book is published, I've also my research has gone in a very different direction, uh, or at least one part of it, which is uh, looking at the human impacts of uh, novel technologies, and in particular the introduction of autonomy. So, self-driving cars, autonomous weapons. Sort of looking at the ethics, regulation, policy, psychological impacts of these kinds of novel technologies. So, trying to uh, bring some philosophical rigor and psychological data to bear on our debates and discussions about the, the role of these new technologies that are becoming, uh, certainly here in Pittsburgh, quite widespread. Right. I mean, Pittsburgh is sort of ground zero for self-driving cars, from what I understand. Uh, it, or... it absolutely is. I see them <laughs> essentially every single day on my walk to and from the office. I see several of them. Wow. So it's, uh, it's very timely and very, uh, very, very much of local importance. And um, I think it's important that philosophers, uh, at least those who want to, uh, not be afraid to try and engage with policy and the public. And, uh, and this is, uh, something that I've gotten very interested in trying to do while, while also continuing the philosophy of cognitive science work. Great. Well, um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with, with me and with new books in philosophy. Um, and I wish you luck with, with both directions of, of your ongoing work. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me. This has really been uh, it's been been delightful to get to talk about the the ideas in the book. You've been listening to my interview with David Danks, professor of philosophy and psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. We've been talking about his new book, Unifying the Mind: Cognitive Representations as Graphical Models, which came out with the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books and Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thank you for listening.